Welcome to Energize Wisconsin podcast series brought to you by the Wisconsin Conservative Energy Forum. I am your host, Scott Coonan, and today we are joined by Peter Mavis, Clean Grid Alliance Policy Manager in the Western Region, and Matt Johnson, Field Director for Land and Liberty Coalition. Today we're going to be talking about everything related to utility-scale renewable development. So, Peter and Matt, welcome. Um, Peter, I will turn it over to you just for a, a brief introduction real quick. Um, you know, introduce yourself to the audience, please. Uh, thanks, Scott. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, uh, Peter Mavis. I'm the Regional Policy Manager for Clean Grid Alliance. Um, CGA, we work on util utility-scale wind, solar, uh, battery storage uh, development across a nine-state footprint in the upper uh, Midwest, and uh, do a lot of policy and regulatory work uh, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa, and North South Dakota. And Matt? Field Director for Land and Liberty Coalition here in Wisconsin. Uh, take a second, please introduce, you know, Land and Liberty and, and what you're doing across the state. Hi, Scott. Yeah, I'm Matt Johnson. I'm the Field Director for Wisconsin Land and Liberty Coalition. I build support for wind and solar projects across the state of Wisconsin. Land and Liberty formed a few years ago and is in most of the Midwest states. And our teams work to build support for these projects. Uh, all across the specific state staffers are in. So I cover Wisconsin and do a lot of community outreach throughout the state. So I guess, um, let, you know, let's start with basic questions here, guys. Um, you know, first off, I guess I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Peter. You know, utility scale development. Um, what What is that, I guess? You know, what, what constitutes utility scale development? Um, and maybe then just, a, you know, a follow up to that. You know, what are you what are you seeing um, across the Midwest and, and the states that you're kind of watching? You know, what does that um, the utility scale market look like, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Scott. I think maybe a lot of people don't really understand that terminology. So utility scale development really is your large renewable energy, energy generators of wind and solar uh, that are going to be hooked directly up to the bulk uh, power transmission system versus, you know, a rooftop solar system or a small community go, uh, community solar garden system, which is going to be hooked to the distribution side of things. Uh, so these are very large projects, usually in the 50 to, you know, 300 megawatts, sometimes bigger for uh, both wind and solar. And, uh, you know, CGA, we've been working on um, uh, uh, wind issues for 20 years. In fact, this is our 20-year anniversary this year. And, you know, we used to be called Wind on the Wires, and we, you know, rebranded a couple years ago because we just saw the market changing so much with the advent of utility-scale solar development and the price points there, as well as battery storage um, coming into the market. So now we kind of cover all these sort of utility-scale size uh, potential projects across the footprint. Um, we, we're seeing, we're still seeing a tremendous amount of, of development. Uh, you know, the, the wind side of things is kind of um, still very active, but solar is really taken center stage. Um, as you know, uh, states like uh, southwestern Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, South Dakota are as good of wind resources you're going to find anywhere in the country. Um, but we're starting to see a large shift uh, to solar development. Uh, Minnesota has been very active. Um, there's about four or five projects that are um, in the planning phase, uh, submitted some permits before uh, the commission in Minnesota. Obviously, Matt will talk about Wisconsin going gangbusters. And we're just really starting to see um, solar really kind of ramp up in states like Iowa and um, 
you know, uh, on the eastern side of the footprint too in Indiana and some other states. So I, it's a very exciting time. Uh, you know, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, you know, that, that managed the bulk power system through the central part of the, the country um, is showing just a huge, uh, robust um, uh, connection process for solar. So solar's really taken off right now. And uh, there's going to be a lot of work uh, to kind of get people comfortable with solar. You know, it's kind of the same issues that we struggled with with wind, but wind is obviously a lot more mature. So a lot of opportunities um, for continued development in the Midwest, and we're excited to kind of um, venture into the realm of this new solar era. So, so Matt, I guess, uh, you know, before we get into too much else about this, um, you know, what Wisconsin focus, what does uh, what does that market look like for renewable energy utility scale um, in, in Wisconsin right now? For Wisconsin, we're seeing a significant increase in solar development, uh, some wind, but it's probably about 75, 80% of solar development. Uh, so there have been many projects that have been approved by the Public Service Commission here in Wisconsin the last few years. I think we're up to 11 um, utility scale solar projects that the commission has approved just in the last three years, and we have more on the way. And these are projects that are from eastern, uh, southeast Wisconsin, western Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin. All across the state, we're seeing a pretty significant increase in solar projects and then have some wind projects in development. Uh, but Wisconsin has pretty good solar resource and um, I think those are most of the projects that are going to be happening in this in the future it will mostly be solar. Yeah, so I, I did a I went on to MISO, um, you know, before this and actually kind of looked up, you know, what that queue looks like um, a, for projects just in Wisconsin at the state level here. And there's like 8000 megawatts of solar, you know, and obviously in the pipeline to, to be developed. And now uh, not all of that will get built, obviously, um, but, you know, there's there's over 2000 megawatts of battery storage even now there's wind as well here in Wisconsin um, so you know I guess my question to both of you to some degree and I think we're all three of us are maybe a little bit new you know within the last five years give or take uh, to, to this industry you know quote unquote but um, you know five ten years ago states didn't look like this right I mean there, there just was not this much renewable development so you know Peter maybe if you want to lead off but Matt feel free to, to jump in as well you know, what, what has changed in the last decade here? I mean, that's a good question, Scott. I think there's a lot of things that have changed. One is huge advancements in technology, whether it's for solar or even wind for that matter. You know, renewables are able to compete in the marketplace with your traditional uh, baseload generators, gas plants, coal plants, nuclear plants. You know, wind facilities have gotten a lot more efficient and you can and I'll get a 50% capacity factor out of a wind turbine. Um, and so, and I think the other big piece is just, it's just market demand. I mean, whether it's utilities recognizing, you know, the economic value of this stuff, or you have, uh, which is very interesting and is going to be even a bigger slice of the pie is the large commercial industrial demand for renewables. When you think of companies that big, Fortune 500 companies that want to be, you know, carbon neutral and some of these other things, they're seeing, you know, wind and solar as a great opportunities to achieve that. So there's a lot of, a lot of forces in play, but really, I, I think it comes down to market forces and just 
people want to have access to, to more renewable generation. And what I would add to, and like Peter said, I think it's mostly driven by market forces. The technology just has become so efficient even in the last 10 years. I think for the cost of solar power at the utility scale, it's had a tenfold decrease within 15 years. And so now you have a situation where wind and solar is cheaper than coal, uh, comparable natural gas, and sometimes cheaper natural gas. And that's why these coal plants are being retired in Wisconsin, is that just it costs more money to keep operating them, and it costs more money for utilities and their customers to keep operating coal plants. And so they're transitioning pretty quickly to more solar, wind, and battery storage here here in Wisconsin. So, so you've got inexpensive renewables, right? The economics have changed in the last decade. You have utilities that you know, essentially want to buy the power from these sources, right? They, there's a very robust market across the Midwest. Basically, all the utilities have some sort of carbon reduction goals or renewable procurement goals. Um, so you've got, you know, the market kind of lining up in that way. Let's talk for a second about challenges. Um, obviously, you know, I think, Matt, I'll, I'll direct this question to you first, but you know, we don't necessarily see a lot of these projects as, as total slam dunks, right? Um, there are some some challenges, um, you know, to, to the development of, of renewables at, at such a large industrial scale. Um, you know, what are, what are you seeing across the state? What are some, you know, typical issues, I guess, that we're running into with, um, you know, particularly, obviously, if solar development is kind of the future in the next five, 10 years, you know, what are the, some of the challenges you see there? Yeah, some of the challenges stem from, you know, needing uh, participating landowners to voluntarily participate in these projects. And so obviously developers work with uh, folks who are landowners and farmers who want to participate in a large scale solar or wind project. And so those folks obviously have to be found and um, talked with to see if they're interested in being part of a project. And so that um, can entail, you know, years of outreach and work and answering questions, which is totally normal. Um, some of the hurdles I've seen in Wisconsin is that, you know, sometimes there are community members where they may not get uh, information from the best sources of information on uh, online or like on social media sites. And so what we've been trying to do is help provide accurate and factual information to communities about large-scale development uh, for solar or wind. Uh, some concerns, you know, that we've seen in Wisconsin, I think are pretty um, common to other states, whether it's um, folks may not want to look at solar panels or wind turbines. And I think for solar projects, the developers that have been operating in Wisconsin and developing projects have worked with, you know, local community members or neighbors in addressing those visual concerns. Uh, whether it's planting trees or bushes, um, but we've seen those visual concerns come up. Another one that is sometimes more specific to Wisconsin is in regards to farmland and land use. So for wind, um, obviously it doesn't uh, isn't as relevant because a wind turbine base may only take up quarter or half an acre, but for solar projects, they're often on dry, flat uh, land that's usually agricultural land. And so there are some community members where they may not want to see uh, solar panels on ag land that could be used for growing crops. 
And so we address those concerns and talk about how the owners of the land use their private property rights to voluntarily participate in this project. Uh, talking with landowners and farmers across the state who are part of these projects, one of the main reasons they're, they're participating in the project to begin with is to diversify their income and just stay in business. For Wisconsin and other states, wind and solar is essentially a cash crop now. And so these farmers may still grow corn or soybeans or have cattle, but then they're putting part of their land on a solar project. And so we're working to address community concerns, uh, whether it's um, the visual aspects of a solar project uh, or land use concerns that community members may have. Uh, so those two are some of the, the uh, typical concerns that we hear and try to address um, in presentations or one-on-one -on -one meetings um, or phone calls. And Peter, does that look similar, um, I guess, you know, across you know, the footprint of, of your states? I mean, is that touching on some of the main opposition that you, you see in some other states as well? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with, with Matt. I mean, I think he hit it right on the, you know, right on the head. Um, I would, I, I kind of look at it and there's kind of three buckets here. One is you have um, kind of the, you know, the, the, the challenges at the local level, it could be landowners, it could be, um, you know, so the visual impacts, you know, some of these other things, the land use issues, which I think is a great topic to talk a little bit more about. And then the other, the other piece is kind of the, the, the regulatory framework in the various states. And I, I think about that in the sense of uh, a state like Indiana, where you have permitting at the local level and, uh, and Iowa as well. And so the counties can have a tremendous amount of um, in, uh, input and impact on whether projects get developed in these local communities. Unlike statewide siting like Wisconsin and Minnesota, you know, North and South Dakota. And so a state like Indiana, um, you know, a third of the, the counties in the state, uh, if not more, are basically have moratoriums or, or, uh, or zoning standards that are so strict that it is, uh, essentially creates a moratorium. And so trying to, to overcome those hurdles through the public policy process is, is a, a big challenge. And then the last big piece, which um, we can talk a little bit more about is there just isn't a whole lot of transmission availability uh, left in several of the states, especially the ones that I work in, um, southwestern Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Iowa um, are seeing real challenges uh, for availability just to interconnect a, a new project. And, um, you know, it, it just becomes cost prohibitive because the amount of money that these projects would have to put into a system upgrade uh, makes them not not feasible. So that, that's a big hurdle, but that is a regional hurdle uh, that takes uh, all the states within the MISO footprint to find some common ground to um, to build some more transmission lines. Yeah, I, I did. I did want to bring up obviously the the transmission issue, but let's let's zero in on the land use issue for a second because I think you know I'll confess I'm sympathetic to that argument to some degree. I I grew up in what at the time was rural-ish Brown County up around Green Bay area. Um, and, you know, we were surrounded by cornfields and, um, you know, my, my grandfather had a, a dairy farm. So I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a, a stranger to rural Wisconsin or, or to the ag economy, you know, here in the state. I guess, what, what do you guys say, you know, to somebody who says, I can't eat a solar panel, right? I, I mean, you know, what do you say to some so folks, you know, in a community that, you know, genuinely don't see solar as 
uh, fitting in the rural landscape or, you know, fitting into the, you know, ag based economy. Um, what are the arguments um, back to some of that? For, for some of those conversations, I, I kind of cover a few items uh, in regard to land use. Uh, like I said previously, you know, these farmers are kind of deciding to do um, what's best for their family or, or for themselves or, or passing down their farm to their family. You know, with, with some, some of the commodities like corn being at the same or similar price as they have been for 50 years, you know, many of these farmers just are struggling to stay in business. And I know farmers across the state go out of business every year. And um, what I tell people is that oftentimes these farmers only put a percentage of their land on a solar project. You know, they, they, they may still continue growing other crops or have cattle and then are getting that land lease payment from the solar project to stay in business. For more background information too, even if Wisconsin got 50% of its electricity from solar power in the state of Wisconsin, it would only require less than 1% of the farmland or agricultural land in the state. So what we're really talking about is a very small percentage of the ag land that could potentially be uh, part of solar projects um, in different communities across the state. And fundamentally, I think those those private uh, property rights of those landowners and farmers is pretty key because they're the reasons the project will even happen is because they're voluntarily participating in a project. And I think what we're going to see across Wisconsin and across the country is that these solar projects or wind projects are a form of cash crop. Also for Wisconsin, we unfortunately throw away a lot of food. Uh, the DNR had did a study in the last few years that for Wisconsin, uh, for the average person, we're throwing away about 220 pounds of food a year. So we're, we have a lot of food waste. So there definitely could be land that's used for solar projects that, you know, maybe previously was corn. And then in regard to corn, we have 37% of our corn grown in Wisconsin is just for ethanol production. So it's not used for feeding people or animals. And as, you know, more electric vehicles um, are, you know, purchased by customers across the country, there will likely be less demand for ethanol uh, because there will be more electric vehicles, whether it's you know, passenger vehicles, buses, uh, trucks, etc. And so I think these solar projects are a way for farmers just to stay in business. There will be some adjustments for these communities. Like you said, Scott, I, I think there's a lot of these communities where, you know, having a solar project on, you know, hundreds of acres in their area is just, it's going to be a new adjustment. And I think what can be really helpful is having those uh, participating landowners talk about why they are participating in a project. I think some community members just don't realize the struggles of uh, the financial struggles of farming, of staying in business, especially when you have some of those commodities that they've been at a similar price for several decades. And um, I think highlighting those points can be really helpful. And two, developers can make things a little smoother or easier by working with local community members, 
um, by you know planting trees or bushes to block the views um, of solar projects. And then for Wisconsin, some of those concerns too can be addressed uh, due to the significant economic benefits of projects. Uh, you know, it's hundreds of construction jobs. There's long-term maintenance jobs. There's substantial revenue to towns and counties, and then land lease payments to farmers. The shared revenue payments to local governments could be used to improve infrastructure or keep property taxes down. Some community communities do that. So they're really they're really significant um, benefits these projects. But I think it is going to be new for some of these communities where, you know, they maybe they're only used to having corn or soybeans or cattle in their area. And it's going to be an adjustment to have uh, solar there as well. But having those supporters or participating landowners talk about why they are participating in the project uh, can be really helpful to demonstrate why they're doing so and the benefits of the projects. Matt, I think you covered it pretty well, but, um, you know, Peter, do you have anything else that you would toss in, I guess, you know, again, on land use and what, what what's your traditional argument, I guess, uh, you know, to, to those kind of communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Matt did a great job of kind of uh, summing it up and, and, you know, kind of a theme is, is for instance, solar on agriculture land, it's it's new. There's a, there's a very sense of newness here. And as, as you mentioned, Scott, kind of the ag community, I mean, you know, the, the very traditional ways of using the land to do corn and soybeans and hang and all these other things. And this idea that you're going to take some of this out of production into solar is it's just different. And I think there's uh, oftentimes just this um, thought is like, well, we don't, that's not what, what this, this God given black dirt is used for. It's meant to grow stuff. It's not meant to have solar panels on it. So I think there's a, a, a an education uh, piece and kind of learning and, and just getting comfortable with um, things changing a little bit. The private property piece um, is always, you know, an excellent way to, you know, talk about this stuff. If a, a, a landowner wants to um, turn his agriculture land into a subdivision or uh, a strip mall or change it into, you know, some other use, I mean, they, they sort of have the right to do that. And, and most people are, are comfortable with that. Another piece, too, that I think is important is that this is not, you know, solar is not a permanent land use change. This is a temporary change in land use that can be easily reverted back um, to cropland. <clears throat> and then to sort of add to that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, if, if you add a, a solar facility to um, agriculture land, what are the stackable benefits? What are the, uh, what they call ecosystem services that can be brought uh, to these facilities? And that's where things like, hanging and grazing opportunities. Um, you have uh, uh, water quality improvements, wellhead protection, you know, drainage things that you can improve, soil restoration, and then you know you, you can do all kinds of different sort of uh, vegetation management plans for pollinators and some of these other things. So I think talking about sort of those those stackable environmental and economic benefits can also um, you know, yield a lot of uh, success in some of these communities. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've always been pro butterfly, right, <laughs> right, in, in, in my life. So I think if we, if we can encourage more butterflies and bees out there, uh, that's, that's not a bad thing, necessarily. Um, you know, I think, you know, as conservatives, I, you guys are hitting on, 
you know, a couple of things that I think are really important. First, it's a private property aspect. I, I mean, that has always appealed to me, you know, as a conservative. I, I To me, that is a, a linchpin of, you know, our American system, right? I, I mean, people have a private property right to develop how they want um, and make money, you know, with what they own. Uh, and I think that's, that is in incredibly important to, to keep in mind for some of this. But, I, you know, Matt, I want to go back to one of the, thing, one of the things that you had highlighted, too, um, around ethanol production, because I am fascinated by how these different technologies and, you know, we have so much stuff happening in energy and energy use. Um, and I, I'm always fascinated with how they work together and cross over, right? So obviously, we're talking utility scale development, solar panels in a farm field. But you know, there's a lot happening over in transportation as well with electric vehicles and switching our fuels over in, in the transportation sector. It's really interesting to consider that maybe in 15 to 20 years, you know, the ethanol market doesn't look quite as robust as it does right now. What are we going to do in Wisconsin with, you, you said, 37% of our corn growing? Um, that's extremely interesting to me, you know, and I, and I don't know that a lot of people have maybe a long-term answer to that question um, going forward. So, uh, let, let's talk about one of the other aspects, one of the other technologies out there, piece of the puzzle here. Peter, I wanted to circle back on transmission for a second. Um, can you tell us, I mean, why why don't we have enough transmission right now? I mean, or is it just not in the right place? Or, you know, why, why do we need to build more lines? I mean, that's probably the most basic place to start. So, I mean, I mean, a couple of things are going on here, Scott. I mean, you, you know, the, the MISO, as you mentioned, the grid operator, you know, back in 2007 approved a dozen or so um, high value transmission line projects across kind of the, the MISO footprint um, to for, and these are our lines that call them uh, multi-value projects. So they bring reliability, you know, resiliency for the grid and opportunities to bring more generation online, of course, nearly all of that was, you know, taken up by renewables. We've had very robust development since then. And now we're, we've kind of hit a brick wall in the last year and a half, especially in the, the MISO North states of Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and parts of Iowa, where, it, you know, the, the, the transmission lines are just, they're just full. You just think about it as a, uh, you know, a, a state highway or an interstate system where it's just gridlocked and you can't you know, you get into your car to get on and you can't go anywhere. That's kind of where we're at. What we're seeing, which I think is, is interesting, is that um, some creative ways to try to get around these challenges. You know, for, for instance, anytime you have a large base load generator that's going to retire, let's say it's a thousand megawatts or something, you, you, you now have a thousand megawatts of capacity that gets freed up, you know, from the, the closure of that plant. So as we see more power plant closures, there will be opportunities to interconnect more renewables. What we're also seeing, what um, which Great River Energy in Minnesota is doing, is they've, um, you know, they they they're in the process of selling uh, their Cold Creek uh, coal-fired generating facility in North Dakota, and they're swiftly moving to uh, renewables. But they also recognize that they can't get interconnection on the system as it currently stands. So what they are doing is they were, are taking what's called a net zero approach, and what they do is as they um, uh, interconnection points at uh, some of their gas peaking facilities, like maybe the, a couple hundred megawatts for a gas uh, peaking facility that maybe only run 10 or 15% of the time. And they're using those interconnection points to add more wind and solar uh, to their portfolio. And so essentially the, the two generators share that interconnection. 
And that also avoids them having to go through the interconnection process through MISO. And so it saves them a lot of time and money. Um, so there's a lot of creative ways um, of doing that. And another example is Excel Energy um, has a resource plan before the Public Utilities Commission in Minnesota right now. And they want to close their large Sherco um, coal generating facility um, kind of in the northwestern part of the Twin Cities. And they want to build a generation tie line, a, trans, a transmission line from that interconnection point all the way down to southwestern Minnesota. Um, and then they want to build a, a, a peaking gas facility that will only run 8, 9, 10% of the time. And then to fill that entire line up with renewables of wind and solar. Because they also recognize that, um, you know, it's going to probably be a while before um, more transmission lines get built. So there are, there are creative approaches to this, which will help move the ball forward, but it's not a panacea. Wisconsin has a little bit more capacity, and as you move east into Illinois and Indiana and Michigan, you know, there's a lot more opportunity. So if you kind of look at the broad spectrum of where a lot of the development is, it's in those uh, eastern states. So, so kind of transmission capacity, if you're thinking about it, uh, it's pretty full up west, but it gets easier as you go east, essentially. I would say easier um, in, in that there's, um, yes, there's more opportunity and more availability. And then maybe just one last point on this. I mean, it takes the entire MISO states and all the load serving entities in those states to kind of come up with a plan that everybody feels comfortable with moving forward with building a new set of transmission lines, but you run into, you know, questions about, well, who's going to pay for these? And if you are, let's say you're in the MISO South States and, you know, they might say, well, I, I don't want to have to pay for a transmission line that's going to be built from North Dakota to South Dakota. I shouldn't have to pay for that. So it really comes down to what do you build, where do you build it and who's going to pay for it? And right now, uh, you know, I think there's a big a lot of discussion about the, the who pays and who benefits from these lines. So there's a lot of challenges uh, to overcome. And I think what you might start seeing is like up here in the North, you have um, the Grid North partners, the, the former CapEx utilities. You know, it's about 10 utilities in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the Dakotas. They, you know, they all banded together and built a series of transmission lines. And I could see uh, more of that happening kind of outside the, the broad MISO process. I'd like to zoom in on one thing you said, Peter, um, and, and a question to you, Matt. Uh, so retirements of existing facilities, um, are, are you seeing uh, maybe in Wisconsin a development pattern of more renewables in counties or areas where there have been recent retirement announcements? I mean, I, I think, you know, Columbia County um, Alliant Energy's uh, coal plant there. Uh, comes to mind for me, you know, are you seeing, are you seeing that kind of pattern where, okay, we're, we're, for lack of a better term, we're unplugging something and, and, you know, we're looking to plug some other things in. Is that something that you see uh, here in Wisconsin? Yeah, absolutely. I think because um, there's a lot of transmission lines and, you know, substations near where those coal plants are, um, whether they you know, are, were retired in the last few years or will be in the next decade, I think those are some of the locations where there will likely be renewable energy projects, you know, for Grant County, for that coal plant in Castle that was retired, there's renewable energy development in that region of the state with a solar project and a few more additional uh, smaller solar projects. Um, in Sheboygan County, with the coal plant being retired there, there's going to be some solar projects around there. 
And then two, where there are coal plants right now, you know, Columbia County with, uh, with that coal plant being retired in you know, four or five years, there's likely to be development there as well. Um, and there, there's other areas of the state where, you know, there's a lot of transmission lines, there's substations uh, where there will be more renewable energy development. And I know one of the main utilities in Wisconsin, uh, WEC Energy Group, who owns WE Energies and Wisconsin Public Service, they've in, you know announced plans to essentially phase out coal within 15 years. Um, and WEC has utilities in Wisconsin, other some other Midwest states, and so they're rapidly transitioning to more renewable energy and then some natural gas as well. So some of their facilities that are coal will potentially be transitioned natural gas, but then others will just be retired and those utilities will seek to purchase more wind and solar and battery. Um, but yeah, so we'll see some of those locations where there's a lot of transmission lines, substations already there. Those will be potentially areas where there's renewable energy development in the next decade. Okay. So, um, you know, bringing it back to the local level, I guess, um, you know, w- one-off question to each one of you, I suppose. Um, it sounds like local communities are, are seeing this already and are going to be seeing more of it, right? Um, utility scale, renewable development. Um, you know, one of the things I think I took away from our conversation here is, you know, this is, this is not quite as centralized as some of our older plants and transmission lines, et cetera, et cetera. So there are just going to be more communities that are impacted and having to deal with, with this kind of renewable development. Um, you know, I guess I, I toss it over to, to both of you communities that are dealing with renewable development or about to deal with renewable development. Um, you know, what are, what are some first pieces of advice that you guys have? Developer is knocking on your door or, or looking at some neighbor's land or, you know, a, a project in your area, you know, you're a county board member or something like that. What are some some good steps? Uh, even, you know, I'd be happy if you guys could share some resources, too, at, at some point for folks. Um, you know, what, uh, what, what advice do you have, I guess, for, for local communities, you know, kind of dealing with this stuff now? Yeah, for local communities in Wisconsin, I mean, our effort, the Land and Liberty Coalition, is always more than happy to talk with local communities about these projects, benefits of projects, uh, you know, how projects are approved, um, you know, what the process looks like. And there's information on the Public Service Commission website about uh, solar and wind projects as well. You know, developers will often have presentations um, about their specific project too. Uh, So there are some good resources out there. And there have been communities that have been very, very supportive of uh, projects when they find out about the economic benefits for their local areas. So, yeah, the Public Service Commission has information on their website about these projects. Um, There's other nonprofits as well. You know, here at Land and Liberty, we're always here to be a resource for local leaders across the state. And to be honest, I, I do a lot of outreach to uh, county board members or city council members or town leaders about these projects and can answer their questions as well. Yeah, it's got to build off that just a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, we, we obviously partner with Land and Liberty and, um, you know, this goes back years ago when we, you know, approached uh, some foundations and said, you know, we're starting to see um, a lot of uh, challenges at the local level. And we think that we need to 
to kind of expand, you know, it's kind of this local outreach and, you know, you fast forward all these years and we have this very robust project across the entire upper Midwest with land and liberty and it's been very successful. You know, on my side of things, I think, you know, I, I work more on the legislative and regulatory side, but I pay very close attention and try to be helpful at the local level where I can. But my advice is, is we, we all need to do a better job of building and growing a diverse coalition in support of renewable energy development. You know, uh, historically, it's really been, it's been the developers, um, it's been sort of urban liberals and, you know, sort of urban environmentalists that really uh, like this stuff. But that, that's not enough anymore. We need, um, we need partnerships with organized labor. They can be very uh, persuasive at the local level if they have an understanding that these are good local jobs that are going to be created with these projects. I think it's uh, very important that we do more work with the various agriculture groups, you know, Farm Bureau and Farmers Union and the commodity groups to find that common ground so that we can all kind of, you know, coalesce around sort of this transition. And so so building a broader, uh, more diverse group of supporters, I think can just help everybody from the state level, you know, to the county boards, uh, to the township folks and to the individual landowners. So that would be, uh, my advice, let's build the coalition, let's diversify it. And then, uh, you know, to Matt's point, get in there early and often, be transparent and build those relationships locally, um, build that trust. That's very important. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, it's been one of the things that, you know, we've, we've been trying to do um, here in Wisconsin, I think for a while is that the technology matures and, you know, starts to be deployed at a, at a larger scale, you know, the, the audience um, that you need to talk with about this stuff grows exponentially. So I agree entirely. Um, well, I guess I, I won't keep you guys any longer here. Um, I appreciate you guys joining us. Um, if you're just tuning in here, we've been joined by Peter Mavis from Clean Grid Alliance and Matt Johnson from the Land and Liberty Coalition. Um, I appreciate you guys joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate the time. Thank you. You've been listening to Energize Wisconsin podcast series brought to you by the Wisconsin Conservative Energy Forum. Thanks for listening.